welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. Name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. So we are in the seventh part of our series on finding true rest, the second from last one. Our last sermon in this series on finding true rest will be next week. And for the second from last sermon in the series, Thinking about the idea of sleep and how that's tied to rest. If you know anything or, or, or have read anything about sleep, I, I don't know what sleep scientists or people who study sleep, or I don't know what you would call those people, but it, in their research, they found that, that the amount of rest that we get is not directly tied to the amount of sleep we get. It's not just about getting so much sleep, it's about the type of sleep that you get. They talk about the REM sleep. I think it's rapid eye movement. It's a a deep, deep sleep. And you could sleep for 12 hours a day, but if you don't get that deep sleep, you won't be rested. I think about lack of sleep because I often get enough hours and don't feel rested. And I'm certain that parents of young children and infants, like right over there, (laughs) understand the lack of REM sleep. But as I think about sleep, I, I, I was thinking about our little, bo- our, our little boys, they're big now. Whenever our boys were really, really little. And how when their minds would start wandering and that reality of a man-eating monster was in the closet or under the bed. So they would lay down, they would lay there, but they wouldn't be able to sleep. They wouldn't be able to sleep until they called mom or dad, until mom or dad actually got into the room. We laid down with them in bed, or they are allowed to come and sleep with us in our bed. Because for some reason in their little minds, mom or dad would be able to stop a man-eating monster that is under their bed. And they had that false delusion that somehow dad would be able to slay man-eating monsters. Little did they know that if there actually was a man-eating monster that he would eat dad too. But nonetheless, they were at peace because dad was with them. And as adults, I, I mean, we, most of us aren't worried about man-eating monsters that are living under the bed. But we have monsters of our own kind. That often lead to a lack 
of that REM sleep. Maybe a boss that's kind of a monster or a monster of debt. Awaiting a prognosis, looking at the news about society today, or anxiety about elections that are coming up, or children that have gone astray, whatever it might be, we have those monsters that are playing in our minds that often rob us of that deep deep sleep. So for this sermon today, I want to look at primarily our epistle lesson, looking at Paul's letter to the Colossians, because I think that it has some important information for us. It's some important realities for us to be reminded of that we might be able to receive not REM sleep at night, but kind of like a REM sleep for the soul that we need so that we might be truly rested. And so I want to look at the preeminence of Christ, the presence of Christ, and then how those realities provide the rest that we really need. So first, the preeminence of Christ. Like I said, I wanted to look and focus on our Colossians reading But a little bit of background might help understand what Paul is doing in this letter to the Colossians. He's writing to a church that is primarily Gentile. They would have been Romans, part of the Roman Empire. And during the time of the writing of of Paul's letter to the Colossians, there was a lot of anticipation and excitement and hope within the Roman Empire. Roughly 10 years earlier, the former emperor Claudius had been poisoned to death and assassinated. And a new, young, reports say good-looking and intelligent, one who was an accomplished poet and musician, had become emperor. And took over. This young, exciting emperor is known as Emperor Nero. And during the early part of his reign, the, the time leading up to the letter to the Colossians, Nero had done many things that were celebrated and praised by all. He reversed many of the unpopular practices and policies of his predecessor, Claudius. Nero had banned the secret trials against his opponents, got rid of the practice of going and killing anybody within power who was a threat to his own power. He he stopped that. He gave more power and freedom to the Senate. He banned bloodshed for entertainment, banning the gladiator games. He banned capital punishment. He reduced taxes which even back then people celebrated, just like today. He even gave slaves the right to bring their masters to trial for abuse. And when he learned about the plight of the Jewish people within the empire, he gave aid out of the emperor's coffer to 
to the Jews, which would have included all of the Christian Jews during the time. So there's a lot of hope that this young, brilliant, artistic emperor was going to bring peace. The Pax Roma that they were all seeking. Now, if you know anything about the history of Rome and know anything about Nero, uh, uh, likely a couple years after this letter was written, there was a great fire in Rome. And leading up to this point, Nero had started to lose it slightly, started to become skeptical. Many historians and many even in his day thought that Nero set the fire so he could wipe clean a portion of Rome and then rebuild it in the artistic beauty and grandeur that he had wanted. And in the midst of the outrage over this fire, he found favor among the people by blaming the Christians for setting this fire. And following that began a great persecution throughout the Roman Empire. The first supported persecution of Christians by the state. Seeing what we read about of Christians being thrown to the wild beasts and crucified and killed. And see, in this context... Right before this great persecution, but in the midst of this great hope in this new political leader, we have Paul open his letter by penning these audacious and profound words. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Paul writes, He, which is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He reiterates this idea of the preeminence of Christ within our reading today in in Colossians 2. In 8 through 10, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, Paul is writing this letter. He's saying, do not be deceived. The reason he is writing this letter is because he has a concern that the Colossians were being drawn away from a focus upon Christ. The preeminence of Christ. That their peace 
their hope, their security was found in some, was, was being directed away from Christ to something else. Now, most scholars of, of, of the, the, the letter believe that there were some false teachings that are brought in that are referenced by Paul, most likely a, a proto or early form of Gnosticism, which is the idea that, that God, that Jesus either did not actually bodily, was not bodily there or did not physically raise from the dead. But the focus of that heresy was against anything physical and tangible and bodily and was centered upon coming to these certain theological and philosophical concepts. And there's a possibility of this other heresy of, of Judaizing that Paul combats elsewhere, which is that to be secure in Christ, one not only needs grace and faith in Christ, but adherence to Torah. And those are definitely running through it, but you also see in the language over and over again that Paul is using here an unmistakable, clear political concern. The trust, weight was placed upon the emperor or rulers or thrones or authorities that he speaks of. Actually, some of the language that he uses in that introduction was intentionally twisting language that was attributed to Nero and taking it a step further and attributing it to Christ. In some ways, saying, Jesus is Lord of all. Nero is not. You see this as he says that he is the head of all rule and authority. And not only head, but it says that he is the creator and Lord of all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. But then he goes on and points out that Christ's dominion is greater than Colossae. It's greater than the Roman Empire. For his dominion is over all that exists. And he says that he is reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace. That idea that was so longed after, the Pax Roma, he's making peace by the blood of the cross. True peace. Not by emperors or rulers, not through military might or economic prosperity, but by Christ's bloodshed. This almost unbelievable idea that the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one through whom all things were made, made peace by taking on our rebellion and violence, by taking on our sin, and humbling himself by taking on the cross. He's saying that in Christ and Christ alone, in the preeminence of Christ, superiority over all things and all rulers and all authorities, that it's in that that we find 
real peace, true rest in him and him alone. See, I think one of the keys to finding that true rest, that that REM soul sleep rest that we need for our souls is realizing who it is that we are actually dealing with. And I'm not talking about just sound theology. I think true rest comes from a deep recognition of the preeminence of Christ over every single thing. As Paul said, and warned them about being drawn away from Christ. So one of the things that is a challenge is that we can always throw a little bit of Jesus in to sanctify something, to make it seem as if we're focusing on Christ. But the problem is, is that if you have Jesus plus anything as our source of security, of peace, of hope. And we don't have the real Jesus because Jesus is preeminent over everything. It's not we can have peace and rest if we have Jesus plus job security. Jesus plus economic prosperity. Jesus plus good health. Jesus plus anything. If we need Jesus plus something, then we don't have the Jesus being depicted to us here by Paul in Colossians. And I am very intentional not to get political, but we are coming into an election. And as Paul was writing to the Colossians He's making an intentional statement that their peace and rest was not to be based on the apparent Pax Roma under Nero's early reign. In a very prescient way, this letter carried even greater weight a few years later. That they, no matter how psychopathic their ruler might have become, cannot rob them of their peace in their rest because it is found in the preeminent Christ the image of the invisible God God with us but so you have the preeminence of Christ but it's not just enough to recognize how Christ's true nature and grandeur but it's also important to realize his very real presence with us It's not enough for a kid to realize and know his parents' monster-slaying abilities. The child needs to know that mom or dad is in the room with them. And then they can sleep. And then they can rest. Paul says in his intro, in him, which is Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Colossians 2.9, he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt is said to have dwelt among us. 
incarnation. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. And now as we read in 2.10, he says, And you have been filled in him, the one who is in preeminent, the one who is the head of all rule and authority, is now in you, filling you, intimately with you. In our gospel reading, we see Jesus making this promise. He says that he will not leave us as orphans, but will send his Holy Spirit who will be with us and in us. Earlier in that John passage, Jesus says it's actually to our benefit that he is going to be with the Father because he will be sending the Holy Spirit to dwell with us and in us. And I think this idea of presence is extremely important, um, and especially maybe in, in our day where, where we can sometimes intellectualize and personalize and internalize a lot of things. But see, Christianity is not primarily a teaching. It's not a philosophy. In its very foundational sense, it's actually not a faith. It's a reality of incarnation and presence granted to us by grace through a historic death and resurrection. I say that it's not a faith, not because faith doesn't matter. It, it is by faith, through, through grace, by faith that we have been saved But at its foundation, it's not a faith because if none of us believed and if none of us had faith, it still would be just as true. Jesus would still be preeminent. And he would be Lord. And if you look at the scriptures, it's interesting because the, the, the Jews had all of the teaching, all of the theology, They had prophet after prophet after prophet bringing the word of God. And yet, Scripture tells us that that wasn't sufficient because we needed incarnation. The teaching of the written word was not enough. We needed the incarnation of the living word to come and dwell among us. After Jesus has raised from the dead, you had the disciples who had three years of discipleship with Jesus. They had all of the teachings of Jesus. And they are told that they had to wait. And they could go and do nothing until the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had to wait for the presence of God with them. That's where if you look in the New Testament epistles, you look in Acts and you study early church history from the beginning of the church, Christianity was incarnational, it was sacramental, and it was external. What I mean by incarnational is that God with us historically and physically through Christ was the root, the soul, was the, everything hinged on that for the hope, our redemption, our security, everything that is our faith. 
It was rooted in the body and blood of Christ. If we had all the great theology and teachings of Scripture, Paul tells us if Christ was not physically here, physically died, and physically raised, then we are fools without hope. And we see throughout Scripture that redemption that was accomplished by Christ is enacted in the world through a real active presence of God through the Holy Spirit. And without God present and acting, there would be no redemption. No salvation. It says that he does so in the world, but also incarnate in some ways because he's in us. Intimately with us. And I say sacramental and external because this early emphasis on Christ's presence with them was understood to be deeply and more profoundly manifest as they would gather together for prayer and for worship. It's interesting. If you go back to some of the earliest church fathers, one in particular that I like is Ignatius of Antioch. I like him because he's so ancient. Ignatius of Antioch wrote in the late first centuries, in the 80s and 90s AD, when St. John the Apostle was still alive. And in one of his writings, he writes against the heresy of docetism, which is a form of Gnosticism that denied incarnation said that what we really needed was just teaching. The secret knowledge. And as he wrote to combat them in the 80s or 90s AD, he argues from Scripture. But then, interestingly, then he argues that one of the most damning aspects of their heresy is that their heresy separates them from the real presence of Christ because it excludes them from the worship and collective prayers of the church. Because if God cannot be present to us in the body of Christ, he cannot be present to us in the gathered body nor through the sacrament of the Eucharist. And so what Ignatius argued was that that. His, these, this false teaching not only deviated from orthodox teaching, it is not only dangerous because it, this, it perverts the teaching. It's even more dangerous because it separated them and the people from the actual life-giving and sustaining presence of God through Christ and the Holy Spirit. And I share that not because... We need to know church history or that Ignatius is some way authoritative. But he captures in that an early mentality from the very beginning that, yes, doctrine and teaching matters, but it matters because it connects us to an actual real living presence. That our faith is not a philosophy. It's not a teaching. 
It's an encounter with the active, real, living, and present God. So why does this matter with regard to rest? I think the preeminence of Christ, his lordship, his victory, redemption and reconciliation in the presence of Christ. These realities, when tied together and when we understand these realities as both being real, but also rooted outside of ourselves. Not found within, but actually found without, outside of ourselves are rooted in Christ. It's then we can begin to have a greater sense of rest. What I mean by that is that our faith is not something that we just muster up from within. It's not contingent upon our momentarily, momentary level of faith or belief. It doesn't mean that faith and belief don't matter. They're essential. But it, Christ's preeminence and his presence is not created by our faith. Faith is acknowledging what is already true and real. Being aware of what is there. Christ's preeminence and presence is not something that is mustered up. But what is within us is fostered by our encounter with the preeminent one who is present with us. See, the thing is, the good news is that Christ is risen. Christ is victorious. Christ is present with us and in us through the Holy Spirit, whether or not we particularly feel it at the moment. It is true in spite of our doubts that we might have to carry with us at the moment. And I think that that's the value of gathering together for prayer and worship. It's important that we learn sound theology. It is important that we gather together, that we are you know, uplifted and through song and prayer. It's not, but it's not just some pietistic act and it's not just some, some, some study of a religious idea that we have adopted. Christ says that when we are gathered together, two or more, in his name, he is in our midst. That's a claim that is true whether or not you feel it that Sunday. Or if you doubt it. We gather together and we celebrate the sacraments. Which are external physical signs of God's real presence and favor in our midst. We're going to be celebrating a baptism in a couple of, a couple of weeks. Throughout most of history, baptism was understood not as a statement you make about your faith, but a statement God makes about you. 
an external sign that is placed upon you. It can be rejected. But that statement still stands and can be received and taken hold of by faith. Similarly, the Eucharist, which was instituted by Christ, is a physical, tangible, common, physical and tangible common elements of bread and wine that we receive from outside of ourselves as a sign of the physical, tangible elements of Christ's body and blood broken and shed for us and for our salvation. We receive salvation by faith. Our salvation is not in our faith. It's in the physical presence of Christ in his body and blood shed on our behalf. And in receiving, we are somehow united to Christ. We receive to, be strength, to strengthen our faith and sustain us, not because our faith is always so strong. I always say to people as we talk is that it's actually when we doubt, when our faith feels weak, is when we need worship, when we need the sacraments the most. Because it's in that that we are reminded that our security is not in my grasp of God, it's not in my certitude. My peace is found in His life sustaining grace and presence. That is offered to myself outside of myself. My security is in his grasp of me. And I know most people here are not Anglican or from a historic liturgical tradition. Whether it's helpful or not, I mean, you can say, but... Most of the church's liturgy and its movements have been shaped to be a reminder that we are not just dealing with ideas. We're dealing with a reality. And that in worship and prayer, God is actually in our midst. We do this practice of processing the cross. And if you notice when... Process the cross. If you're in, in a very Anglican church with a lot of Anglicans, you'll notice that whenever process the cross, people bow as the cross goes by. It, it's not in reverence for the cross. A hunk of brass that deeply needs polished. Um, but it, it's not in reverence for that. But because that was, is a symbol of a representation and reminder that Christ is the one who's present with us, leading us into worship. And then afterwards, when, we, when it goes out, it is a reminder that it is Christ that leads us out on mission to the world. It's a representation of Christ's presence. When we sing the Sanctus, which is the holy, 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 it's utilizing words that are, that are ascribed to the heavenly worship And it's a reminder that even though we can't see it or perceive it, we're only separated by a thin veil. And that as we come into worship, we are not just a small little tiny church plant, but we are joining into the heavenly worship at the throne of Almighty God. Whether or not we see it or perceive it.
And that's why some, you might see, do this at the beginning of it. It's just a physical reminder that as we would approach the throne of God, we wouldn't do this, we would fall flat on our face. But at least it's a physical gesture of a reminder that we're not just looking at a table with candles. We're entering into the presence of the throne room of God. And even all of the standing and the kneeling and the standing and the kneeling and then the kneeling and the standing is simply just a reminder that we are not here discussing ideas and theological concepts, but it's a reminder that we are approaching God, the preeminent one that is described here in Scripture in all of His holiness. And so we physically act in a manner that reminds us that though we can't perceive or see him, we are approaching a very real, a very present, a very glorious and holy God. I say this not because liturgy is the only way, nor is it the best way. It is just a way. But what's important is that in all of these different things, what matters is that we, we come together and worship not because it's entertaining, not because it makes us feel good, not because we all agree on certain ideas or it because it bolsters something that is just found within my own heart. We come together and worship as a reminder of Christ's preeminence over all things over all the things which we can be tempted and deceived to place our peace, hope, and security in. And that preeminent Christ is very real with us and by the Holy Spirit in us. Our ability to find true rest, that REM for our souls comes, I think, in many ways from continual would even say habitual reminders of who Christ really is and the recognition that he is with us and through the Holy Spirit in us. And that is true regardless of whether we feel it or perceive it at the moment. My brothers and sisters, no matter where you find yourself today, Christ is preeminent. Christ is victorious. Christ is risen. Christ is Lord. And he's here right now with us. And like that little child, when we recognize that, we can find true rest. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue.